Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club podcast, where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two, sometimes three, because we're like that. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through the lens of governance to really get at what it means to be in a community in 2019. My name is Lisa Schweitzer. I'm your host. I'm a professor of urban planning and spatial analysis and gender and sexuality studies here at USC. Today, we're going to talk about the southern border of the United States. We've read The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu. We see this podcast as a learning experience for us through the reading and conversation, and hopefully for you as well. That being said, we have been known to make mistakes because we are human. Let us know what you think. Send us your feedback. We're on social media, and you can email us too. And we also like to hear about book ideas for us to discuss. Now onto the conversation. With me today are some new friends to the podcast. Hi, May. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you do? I am going into my second year in the PhD program here at the School of Price, uh, studying urban planning and development. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm from the city of Paramount, and this topic was definitely uh, very uh, touching for me on a personal level because as a first-generation student, um, countless people in my family have crossed the border themselves and have experienced life in the United States as undocumented people. Thank you. Juan, who are you and what do you do? I often ask myself that question. Um, And in the meantime, I'm an associate professor in the Department of American Studies and Ethnicity. I'm a geographer by training. um, And thanks for inviting me today. Aubrey, old friend. (laughs) I am the executive director of the Bedrosian Center here at the preschool. And you are the producer of our podcast. And I produce this podcast. Uh, we have two newcomers to the podcast, um, and so you and I are the old timers, so we'll help you out. Basically, it's just a free-flowing conversation. We do have some questions, but I often find I start with one and the conversation just goes from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually spend about an hour. Sometimes we go over a little bit. We can spend as little or as much time on anything as you like. Um, I do have one additional caveat for our for our readers. Um, there are going to be spoilers. There is a, a, a strong narrative in the book. Um, and it also has some triggers in it, I think. Uh, yeah. Be gentle with yourself as you're reading it. It's, there's a lot of tough stuff in here, uh, but it's important things. It's important stuff. So on to that. Does anybody want to summarize the book for us, or would you like me to do that? Please. I selected this book. Uh, it was getting a great deal of attention about the time I was making some suggestions for next year's book club. And when I read it, I was impressed by the quality of the writing and the themes that came together in his narrative for what we wanted to discuss, given so much of the recent uh, policy changes that have happened along the border. And when I say recent, I mean both in the past three years and in the past two decades. Um, this is a personal history Uh, where Cantu talks about his experience growing up along the southern border of the United States, uh, the son of an extremely perceptive woman who's an important part of the story and actually my favorite part of the story, actually, where he talks about entering the Border Patrol, being part of the Border Patrol in various different roles, and his interactions with people at the border, including his fellow Border Patrol uh, members, and finally his leaving the Border Patrol and how... Uh, It changed his relationship to both the Border Patrol and the people that he had thought he might have been able to serve as a member of the Border Patrol. In this, throughout the story, uh, in addition to the the sort of tangible issues about 
the southern border of the United States and the policies and the institutions that are in play there, there's an extended meditation about the role that violence plays in our development and in our act- interactions with each other, where personal um, where interpersonal violence comes from, where institutional violence and institutional norming towards violence comes from. And for me, that was actually the reason why I picked the book. Um, so I think I pretty much hit everything. Is there anything else I need to add? At the end, it basically becomes a story of his struggles with a friend who has been deported. And, and that takes up probably the last third of the book. So, um, is there anything I've missed out of that, do you think? Anything you want to add? We're all shaking our heads. No. All right. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you're good. So, who are your favorite characters? I talked about his mom being my favorite. I mean, she's awesome. I love his mom. I mean, I just thought, what what a wise woman. And I, I would love to meet her and, and talk to her. Um, she had such an interesting job and came into her job in an interesting way. And she was so, um, you know, she let him have his time to, to learn. And she sort of you know, let him do that when he became a border patrol agent. She was worried. And she didn't she, support this. She didn't support it, but she didn't actively discourage him. She didn't, and she let him sort of grow into the learning, mm-hmm. um, which I just thought was beautiful. And then, you know, in the end, she has, I think, we'll talk about that later, but one of my favorite lines um, in the book, which I think is one of the more important lessons. Um I I really also loved Jose. So, yeah, I agree. I think the mom um, it provides such a good opportunity to talk about a lot of generational differences. Um, I think that her own struggles with her identity and her talking about uh, her own mother uh, clinging on to a Spanish past, um, and then her sort of coming to terms with it when she enters into her profession as a park ranger. <clears throat> and how she tries to sort of um, impart that to her son to, uh, you know, sort of guide him in um, valuing his identity, his roots. Um, I, I like the role that she plays um, in the main character's life. Oh. There's a lot of likable people in this book. What do you, did you like anybody? <laughs> no, I hated everyone in the book. Um, no, I mean, I think for me, the the mom certainly was one of the more complex characters in terms of trying to provide a conscience, right? And a historical narrative, I think, that I kept trying to uh, gra- hold on to and, and wish that he would dig deeper into, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this, uh, And then we learn her own complicated relationship with her identity, as right. you mentioned, Jaime. Um, this kind of way in which she was actively embarrassed and shied away from embracing her uh, Mexican family um, and how that then translated into her later life and through her child, you know, um, in, in, to the point where she, you know, becomes this voice that is challenging him, uh, does lay into him as a mother should, <laughs> uh, at the same time provides him with so much nourishing support and love that he is able to go through like 
you know, pretty intense challenges about finding himself. I, I saw it to a large extent a coming of age story yeah. uh, in the Borderlands, um, and in a way which was very interesting to me. Uh, he had a lot of choices and obviously was very privileged uh, in his social social economic status, being able to pass for white uh, at the same time of sort of also feeling welcomed by the Mexicans and Chicanas and Chicanos in the book, um, and then being able to go to college and, and having those choices in ways that many of the... He, he at one point mentions that over half of all the... Uh, border patrol agents are now uh, Latinx, either you know second, third generation Mexican Americans, uh, or from other parts of Latin America, um, and you understand that there's a, a scene where he talks about the where they go and visit Jose in the detention center, and he visually points out the uh, Corrections Corporation of America, and of course. Scholars in carceral studies have pointed out the growth of the privatization of the prison industry and how that is intimately connected to immigration detention. But we also know with that kind of hint um, that for many people who take those jobs, it is not a choice. It is not an exploration of let me figure out how this works because I'm interested as an international relations student and I really want to f figure out how it works on the ground, but it becomes about how do I feed my family? How do I feed myself, etc. cetera? Um, and so it is a wonderful kind of way in which she is able to say, wait a minute, <laughs> right? <laughs> this The thing that you're doing uh, is not something necessarily that you should jump into because you think it should, it's going to teach you there are other ways to learn at the same time, we know that people who have to jump into that become complicit in ways that it's not because they want to learn these things or it's intellectually interesting, but because this is the way in which it becomes institutionalized in everyday life. And ultimately, these are the things that he points at at the end of the book, right? How the institutionalization uh, and the entrenchment of these systems and, 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 and institutions like the Border Patrol really affect somebody's psyche, mm -hmm. um, the way in which somebody becomes, uh, you know, a human being in everyday life. And for him, he had to get away from it. And you're and he left, could get away from and it. he could get away from it, and and this is exactly the point, right? And you're left to wonder, what about all those people who cannot? Well, Beto, yes, Beto mm -hmm. forms that. He has that conversation with Beto, who's like, right. I've got a house, right? I've got kids. You know, I, my feelings here are sort of less cogent than my ability to survive in a system that is precarious right. and uses this precarity to keep me complicit in a system that, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't say that because that's not the way that he relates to the world, but that's essentially the point of that interaction. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think so. So his mom becomes, you know, that, that character. But, but here, as a geographer, I think a character that becomes so powerful. I'd not say that I would say it was my favorite character, but it becomes so powerful. It's just the border itself, mm -hmm. right? The way in which he so uses such beautiful language and imagery to construct, you know, a psychogeography of the borderlands, mm -hmm. right? That makes it alive and vivid uh, in a way where in so much border writing that's not present, 
you know, uh, you have other authors who have written about it in that way, like Sandra Cisneros, like Gloria Anzaldúa, like Ruben Martínez, etc., who have written about the border landscape uh, in a very powerful way because it does, it becomes a live thing, right? And a character that is both beautiful and absolutely deadly. And in a way, we see the way in which human interactions on the border and governance and institutions are constantly trying to produce the border as a death machine. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I see it. I see the border as a death machine uh, in which we sort of have to, to a certain extent, become complicit in its enforcement, right? Uh, and we are made and forced to understand this is a deadly space. The, the um, desert isn't enough. Yes. We have to tip over the water. <laughs> right. Right. We right. have to spoil the food and tip over the water because right. that desert isn't deadly enough. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. What about you, Jaime? What do you think of, uh, do you have any familiarity with this space? Because I haven't really spent any time in the Arizona border. Academically, I have not read too much about the border specifically. Um, as an undergrad at UCLA, I uh, majored in history as well as film and took classes with people like Juan Gomez Quinones. Um, and I have a really strong sense of the history of Mexico itself and uh, US history. So I came into this having more of a historical background, but not so much the academic um, writings and uh, scholarly publications about the border. Um, One of the things uh, touching on what Juan was just mentioning is um, the metaphors that uh, this book alludes to briefly. I wish there would have been more of that. But talking about how the border, uh, when using economic metaphors, um, you know, they sort of dehumanize uh, what actually is happening there. Um, I thought that made me think a lot more about the space itself and um, even thinking historically about the people who were surveying the border and the descriptions of the people who were uh, walking the desert and um, you know writing detailed reports about the landscape and all of this, it sort of took me back to that time almost as if I was watching a Werner Herzog movie, um, you know, talking about um, you know Europeans in Peru, um, you know at a time when I, we read about it in history, but we don't really have uh, this, uh, uh, a lot of times these narratives and stories to really take us there. And I think that's one of the values of this book is that I spend a lot of time thinking about in public policy and urban planning, how do we reach audiences beyond academia? Um, how do we sort of use narratives and how are narratives framed? And I think that although this book, um, and, and I, you know, I'm very interested in beyond this book, reading more about the scholarly writings about the border. Uh, But what I felt was valuable is the ability of the book to capture stories that um, take this um, subject uh, and make it accessible to people who may not read academic publications. And I think that's still something that's very valuable in today's society and something I spend a lot of time thinking about when I think about whether it's gentrification, um, you know, or the housing crisis, uh, transportation equity, um, how do we do that? And I think that, um, you know, there's mention about the book Bloodlands and towards the end, there's uh, talk about how Snyder sort of encourages academics uh, you know, to go beyond just numbers that sort of, uh, you know, make 
all of these individual cases anonymous in many ways and um, you know fail to sort of really uh, make these human lives accessible. And I think that the story of Jose at the end of this book is exactly that. It, it provides one case of which there are many and it allows people who uh, you know may not have a lot of understanding about uh, these issues uh, to at least have one story they can now take forward and hopefully read more about it, learn more about it, understand also that it's much more complex than this book dives into. But the narratives, the story, and making this subject accessible is what I feel is probably the most valuable thing about the book for me. There's a shift in speaking about the landscape, I think, in the book when he moves from Arizona to El Paso. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, did anyone else notice that shift? And what do, you th what do you think is happening there? Or maybe this was just something I perceived. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to me, he writes very intimately about the places that, that are his home places uh, mm -hmm. that he was familiar with his mother. And with El Paso, this is a manner of him having to learn a new border. Mm. You know, and and truthfully, we talk about the border, but it's clearly made, right? It's something that we have made, and it's constructed differently in these different places along the borders. Uh, so border borders, and in El Paso, the he becomes more detached from the space as he he has to become part of it and learn more and more about it. That's what I perceived. I agree. I also I think. Um... He does a really good job in the different sections of the book, sort of um, getting at the permeability mm. of of borders in general. So, you know, in El Paso, it's a border within two cities, you right. know, and so you've got this urban, what is a border in an urban space? And then in the desert, you know, this sort of uh, imposed idea of a border that, you know, when he talks about history, he talks about the, the monuments that were first placed in that border and, and how it changed over time. And, you know, in, in politics, we talk about the border, like in a capital T, capital B, the border. And, you know, you sort of imagine on this cover, this, this wall, you sort of imagine that, right? And that's, that's the political rhetoric and how the reality is so different um until even towards the end when he's he's that scene where he's camping and he's walking across the river until the point where he doesn't know which side of the border he's on um i think that's the culmination of of the way he's talking about the border so that we understand you know this political rhetoric of the border it's a construct, it's a construct. i love the I, one of the things i did like about the book just up front was the title Mm. That's one of the things that captivates me because as somebody who's geography adjacent, <laughs> um, but coming at geography from politics, mm. the, the idea that we have this administrative political boundary that it looms so large in our political institutions – but that isn't real, mm -hmm. right, in terms of an actual material thing in the world, but is mm -hmm. entirely real because we've made it real. Mm -hmm. um, actually becoming a river mm -hmm. that is part of a landscape, right, mm -hmm. a natural landscape, um, 
it just it's a beautiful metaphor for what's going on in this place the both the material uh the physicality of the geography in addition to the social and cultural and institutional frames that get put upon it and that in it shall shape and reshape and interact in a dialectic way to become the reality realities of of life in this place. It also sort of mirrors the 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 way he talks about sort of the institution of uh, border control. So, you know, in the beginning he's studying it. You know, he he grows up with it, but then he studies, and then he's going to try to witness. And he's only witnessing a small portion, and it isn't until the end that he realizes, you know, as a border patrol agent, he was so segregated from the rest of the system that, you know, when he took someone from the border and passed them on, he had no idea, even after studying international relations, even after being a part of the system for so long, that the little part of the system is so siloed from the rest that, you know, it's it becomes a river. It's, yeah. But but beyond that, the, his experience in the Border Patrol does make him more useful right. to his friend when his friend is deported than otherwise. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I want to get, get back to the point that you made about the river and line and the construction. And, and he points out this... This He points this out in the book where he talks about early on when he makes reference to policy changes that have led to uh, the increased precarity of border crossing, right? Mm-hmm. The, and this clearly is making reference to – he doesn't name it, but – and again, this is why I think it's really very important for people to read deeper, right? Uh, use this as a bridge to read deeper, like Jaime was saying, about the history and the, uh, and the scholarship about border making – because there are great books by Joseph Nebens, Operation Gatekeeper, Timothy Dunn, which is the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, that show exactly what he talks about during the 1990s with the construction and the the sort of the implementation of Operation Gatekeeper and Hold the Line. And then more recently, including some of my work on border uh, borderization and big data enforcement, uh, people are writing about the way in which the Tucson sector of the border, it's called Sector 28 especially, uh, becomes such an important site of um, innovation and experimentation with different kinds of militarization of border enforcement techniques, right? And so we, we see that his early experience in the border Patrol is exactly at the moment in which it becomes more militarized, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it becomes the and and this is important because the border becomes more deadly. It becomes a deadlier machine when they start to implement these kinds of policies. So he mentions sensors, right? And he mentions cameras, and he mentions the in- intel sector later on. And all of these things are part of this process of the way in which the border becomes militarized. Um, and so when he He's in the field when he's in the desert. He's at the height of the deadliest sort of uh, version of the border, right? Because this sector becomes more important as people are moved out of places like uh, the Otay Mesa border in Tijuana uh, and even in Mexicali. And so they're pushed further and further into the mountains, into the desert, and it becomes a more deadly experience. So the border is made into a deadlier landscape. Uh, and this is what we see in the early part of the book, right? And that's a very different experience in the El Paso because in the El Paso area, and there's a river there. There is this historic 
connection between these two cities. Uh, and the border becomes a site of exchange and, and cohabitation and coexistence. Uh, in a way that, you know, Tucson never really was. And in fact, if you read books like Laura Gomez's Manifest Destinies, uh, Sheridan's Los Tucsonenses, you understand that the way in which those border cities developed were, were also embedded in this kind of anti- uh, Native American anti-indigenous violence, right? They never emerged as these kind of twin border cities precisely because there was so much pushback from the indigenous populations in those areas that didn't want to be colonized by either the Spanish or the Mexicans. And so the border in those spaces was always a violent landscape, right? Uh, and be because of that kind of racialized history of border making, and then becomes even more so in the 1990s when he's there and joining the Border Patrol. And so the understanding of the nuance of borders and border cities, and we heard this very much in the recent uh, aftermath of the shootings in El Paso, where people talk about El Paso as a loving city. Uh, and you see this in the book where people help him and his mother cross the road when he or his mother gets injured. Um, but that kind of cohabitation and mutual existence existed to a much lesser degree and in more concentrated areas in other parts of the border, precisely because of the history of colonial and anti-indigenous violence, right? Um, and so again, yeah, the nuanced history of the border is absolutely important for people to who are interested in and hooked by this book to read further and understand that it's not just one border, uh, that it's historically been changed over time precisely around policies and racialized violence. I think I'm just going to sit here and let and one I, talk for the rest <laughs> of the time. I feel like that deserves a, a good minute of silence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just keep going. Take a drink and keep going. <laughs> this is this is what happens when you talk about stuff that I am familiar with. But, yeah. uh, you know, one of the things I would like to talk about is a question that Aubrey raised, I, a very good one in, in the questions that she sent out. Just, can you change a system like this from the inside? So I think he does kind of... You know, he's young when he enters the Border Patrol, and I agree there's—I think his mother's very astute about saying to him, you know, these people aren't your ant farm, mm -hmm. right? They're, this whole thing here is not for your edification, ed edification, understanding it. And again, this is something that most of us in this room kind of share because we're in a university, and there's a mm -hmm. great deal of hubris mm -hmm. in trying to understand other people's realities. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things that I do think he wants is he, he wants to be a the good border patrol agent, mm -hmm. right? He wants to, you know, when he finds people, he wants to give them comfort. He wants to mm -hmm. keep them alive. He wants to make them comfortable. You know, it reminded me a lot. Um, did you ever see the series Southland? No. Mm -mm. No. Um, so it's a, I think there's only three seasons of it, but a, a young uh, white guy becomes a cop in South L.A., uh, because he wants to be a good cop. Right. And, you know, in three seasons. He's not uh, a good cop anymore. It's a, yeah. Um, and and that, that is, I think, is a really good question. I don't have an answer to that question. I mean, I would like to hope. <laughs> because how how do institutions change? If not. If not from within. And and outside, right? You, It's a struggle. It, it's both, but... yeah. Another, I mean, another, another series that dealt with institutions and people trying to change them is The Wire. Oh, right? yeah, The Wire. Exactly. I mean, probably the 
example that most came to mind uh, in those parts of the book where he's questioning sort of what's happening to him. Also made me think, um, interestingly, about Ender's Game because Ender's Game is sort of an indictment of the military mind. And so he, throughout the book, is thinking about you know, questioning what's happening to me as a human being as I'm in this institution and as I'm uh, partaking in these horrific sort of situations that he um, is now part of. And again, both of those things are about the, and again, this is about borders and silos, about the the permeability, but also the the separation of, of different parts of the institution that... Um, it allows the normalization of violence because you're only seeing a little piece of it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of the things, one of the things that I study is social movements. And I know you had Manuel Pastor here to talk about state of resistance. And, and the thing that I will point out is that absolutely individuals are important and people that sort of embed themselves in these institutions are important, but to a large extent, their success of transforming the institutions uh, should always be sort of partnered with social movement organizations or outside forces that could then push those institutions to move, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that one of the things that happens is with individuals who to a certain extent, see themselves as transformative individuals in these institutions, oftentimes, you know, there is very little support because the institutions are set up to reproduce themselves. Hmm. And so there has to be a reliance on something outside of those institutions that will force them to change. Um, and whether it's that's... It's a precarious place to be, right? Exactly, exactly. It's a precarious... Because then you're disloyal. Exactly. Right. When you're when you're welcoming two critiques of the organization from within the organization. Right. Right. That's a hard place for you to be. And you but it's really the only, yeah. you know, because this guy burns out and leaves. Right. You know, and congratulations, you've years. written a nice book, but, right. you know, and you came and went and maybe your subsequent writings will have some right. ability to change. But I struggle with this question a lot because my bottom line opinion is that the institution of higher education has become largely corrupt. Correct. Mm -hmm. And we've had a lot of struggles here at USC for a very long time. And so I asked this question of, well, you know, I've screamed my head off about this. I try to help students get what they came here for. I try to do the best I can. But <laughs> am I merely, right, right. helping prop up a system that just, mm -hmm. you know, continues to exploit? Well, I think there's a difference, though, because I don't – this is what sort of bothered me about the book. It was very psychological uh, in, in a sense where it was very individualistic, mm -hmm. right, uh, in a way where he is going to learn about how what he can do to change the system. But we never see him talking about let's organize, let's bring other folks into the conversation, let's sort of do this as a collective process because it's an institution. Otherwise, you set yourself up for martyrdom or some kind of superhero fantasy, right, where you're going to change everything. And I think the distinction between that and the kind of work that you're talking about is that – you know, on a campus like this, there are a lot of people who would agree with you and you are in conversation with them and people are actively and collectively organizing uh, to try to change those institutions. That's a fundamental difference between what we see him doing in this book. Uh, and that is the kind of the old model, which is what I always talk to 
folks that are interested in in social change? Uh, do you want to be kind of develop a, a kind of service orientation, which is based on individual charity, or do you want to talk about organizing, base building, and empowerment? Right? Or do you think of the latter as service? <laughs> yes, right, as a form of service that right. you are you're a a tool and a cog and a piece of and a, and a thread in the tapestry of that. Right, right. And so I think that those conversations are never, he never entertains those thoughts and those conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think so it's reduced to uh, him always sort of, and you see it even with his mom, right? He doesn't even talk to his mom about these kind of inner demons that he's dealing with. And so it shows you the kind of individualistic, individualized nature of the struggle that he's engaged with, right? Uh, So much so that he doesn't have these conversations with his mom about all of the weight that he's bearing with these concepts that he has in his head about changes as an institution. And the second point that I want to make about that is the lawyer, right? And we see how this works, where the lawyer points out at the end of the book where he says, look, I knew this guy. He was trying to change the institution. And then he was framed by his buddies in the Mm -hmm. Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. And we know that that happens within the police departments Mm -hmm. across this country, Mm -hmm. et cetera, right? That that, the way in which those violent institutions reproduce themselves to a large extent are about eliminating those threats and those people who are threatening the centers. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, I agree. I think it would have been more refreshing to hear more of those thoughts coming from him. I think that because he spends so much time with the people he works with and because of the nature of the job, uh, you're actually discouraged from talking a lot of politics, um, having known people who work in customs and border patrol. And you have to sort of live sort of this isolated life where you're not even to engage really through social media. So I wonder what that would look like for somebody inside the institution trying to sort of push those thoughts. And as his readers, we would have been an audience for him to do that. And I, I, I agree. How much of this is just a, not, not just, but uh, to me, when I read that, I see that as the struggles of somebody taught particularistic forms of masculinity or acculturated Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. specific forms of masculinity. We're asking for help is seen as weakness. We're having feelings of sadness, emotion, Mm -hmm. right? Having feelings, period. I don't need to go enlist any, right? But having any feeling besides rage, right, is is stigmatized and treated as a a deficit. Doesn't he bring up the nightmares to one of his co-workers when he's still on the border patrol and it's like a short conversation and right. then, mm-hmm, they don't talk about it anymore right yes we all have right. nightmares yes yeah yeah the efforts to erase or negate feelings among the men uh is so you know it's it's so clear in that scene where they're visiting somebody in the hospital is that it? yes um mm. and one of them gets watery eyed and he cannot bear to show his emotions, so he steps outside, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to the point where I think it, it speaks to that notion of masculinity, et cetera. And the it's way it's a in, punishing form of masculinity yes, that these men have taken on. Yes. And to the point where they engage in ritualized violence, mm-hmm. right? right? And the destruction of, of these these safe drop zones, right? Etc. Um, is a way of all of the way in which ritualized violence is such so tightly embedded with a kind of performance of masculinity that involves or is is based on the non-feeling man. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and that certainly is clear in... in, in well, he in, forces himself to perform it even when he's in private, right? He yeah. shoots a defenseless bird for no reason. Right. Just to prove to himself that he can cause suffering. Right. And then weeps in, in, in his invisibility and silence. <laughs> right. Like, why did I do that? <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of insights about himself there. And again, this is a nicely constructed work. And, and that one of the things that I appreciate about authors is when they don't feel the need to tell you what to think all the time. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty good at that, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. So we never answered the question. Which is do we you know if he had really been in so he should have been organizing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but do you change institutions from within so I sort of wonder and should he have stayed to organize I sort of wonder if it's part of you know he framed his going into border control as wanting to observe mm -hmm. And this idea that you can be a dispassionate observer, which, you know, we have journalism is not biased, right? Everyone's biased, right? Sure. But we have this this idea. So I, I sort of wonder how much of it isn't about that he really wanted to, that he really wanted to change or that he was being a dispassionate observer or trying to be. I don't, I don't really know. I, um, one of the things that I think is important, at least for me in reading books like this, is that Claiming to want to understand something is a very safe right. uh, justification for doing some of the things that you do. Right. You know, what if he, and he was a, a idealistic in thinking that he could be the good border patrol agent, right? Um, and this is one of the reasons why I stay in the academy. <laughs> and one of the reasons why I have a lot of interest in this particular question is about changing things. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, idealism, it's not enough, mm -hmm. as we know, to have good intentions, mm -hmm. right? If there is anything that proves that, it's U.S. <laughs> conduct everywhere south of us forever, <laughs> right? Um, it's not enough to have good intentions. But if we abandon good intentions and leave the institutions to people with indifferent Right. intentions or leave it to people who are like woohoo i get to carry a billy club a taser and a gun um that strikes me as being equally as disastrous do we take up juan's idea and basically in our ideas about professional conduct start to really legitimize right critique mm -hmm. and um, calling for institutional change as legitimate activities of someone working within an agency and not having that automatically knee-jerk treated as disloyal or destructive yeah. to team building. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm with the mom. When the mom starts saying, and I think at the end where she's like, how are you complicit? <laughs> and I say to them, this to my students all the time. Mm -hmm. We are complicit yeah. you know, in, yeah. in these kinds of systems. And let's not sort of fool ourselves into thinking that we are not complicit in the reproduction of a society that is doing the things that it's currently happen that is that are currently happening. Uh, so what's going on on the border right now with the you know with uh, individuals, both men and women and children that are being um, you know held in these detention centers, right? This is going on and has been going on for a very long time. And what do we do, right? And and how are we engaging in that conversation? Um, and we may not be uh, in the desert in the middle of the night chasing people and tracking people down, but our 
involvement in, in, in the society makes us to a certain extent complicit in that process. And unless, unless you choose to speak out about it or to do something or engage in a way where you understand the kind of relationships of power that really dictate how we live our everyday lives, then you are kind of sort of wearing blindfolds, right? And so to me, the question is, how do we engage in this change? And we are within the academy. So, and I don't fool myself into thinking I'm going to go out, you know, and, and create all these social change, but I am in the academy. So what is my job within the academy? And the academy is an institution that has and is and sort of operates under certain kinds of rules of relationships of power. And so it is my responsibility to sort of challenge those things because I mm -hmm. think that for the most part, even the way that knowledge is constructed, you know, the, mm -hmm. there's so much work now in the way in which we think about borders and how borders have to be produced as epistemological sort of uh, creations that then the, how we resolve those problems of the borders are based on how we conceptualize the problem, right? So this idea that the border is a dangerous space, and, and you see it in this book all the mm -hmm. time, the mm -hmm. way in which the border is a dangerous space that must be managed, dangerous in multiple ways. Dangerous because you have these racialized bodies that are potential potential robbers or rapists or et cetera, in the words of our, our famous president. Um, or you have the narco cartels that are dangerous. And so what is the response? Of course, it's a militarized response. It's a police response. And yet what we know and what we see is that there are other parts in the book where they say, no, we've been crossing the borders for hundreds of years, back and forth. People would have families. And there was no need for that kind of policing. And if you understand the border as that kind of cohabitation of brotherhood and sisterhood, etc., then that has a different kind of governance response. Mm -hmm. And the way in which we, we as academics, produce and, and write about knowledge and produce knowledge and write about the borders and these border spaces absolutely has a, you know, effect on the way in which borders are practiced on a daily basis, right? You know, one of the things that I'm working on now is the way in which university researchers are providing the sort of algorithmic tools and big data processes to further militarize the border with the use of new technologies, mm -hmm. right? And so my question is like, okay, my role here is to say, one, we're doing this, even on this campus, by the way, mm -hmm. right? Um, Do we have an engineering school? Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. So, and, and I know who those folks are. So then the question becomes, who are they? Who's sponsoring them? Why are we engaged in this kind of, of, this kind of scholarship? And has USC, as a community of scholars, thought about how it's been, not only, not only is it complicit, but actively involved in the production of the border as a death machine? Right? And so intellectually, epistemologically, there are some of us who have the tools to make that kind of intervention. And absolutely, I think it's important for us to figure out how to make those interventions. So you, going back to Jaime's <laughs> point earlier about the importance of making ideas like this more broadly available. So books like this uh, do make a difference. Yes? No? I think so. Yes. Yeah, I you think can't, in the you can't not on a podcast. Oh yes. Oh sorry. <laughs> I I thought we were just having a conversation around a table here. Uh, <laughs> I totally you cannot forget. you cannot follow up. You know, two minutes of unadulterated brilliance sorry, with sorry, nodding sorry. on a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do think there. I mean, look, 
I, to a certain extent, I, I'm a Gramscian at heart, right? And <laughs> what does that mean, right? Uh, Gramsci said, how are we going to deal with this question? We have to talk about this. He, he chose to write in newspapers, right? right. Uh, because he absolutely believed that social change had to happen in, in his context, uh, in this kind of cultural moment of, tra uh, of change and transition, etc. And so absolutely, we have to do a better job of doing that. And too much of the, too many of the, too much of the time, uh, what happens is we produce these brilliant pieces of work, nobody reads them, etc., and we don't shed light on these conversations that are happening. And so I congratulate you, Lisa and Aubrey, on making sure that you know more of these conversations are happening through podcasts like this. <laughs> I'm not My sure. My heart just grew. Oh. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know. I think the my sort of circling back to my point, which you expanded on very well, I think, you know, um, I don't know who said this. I read it in a book by Deirdre McCloskey, who was my advisor at the University of Iowa 100 million years ago. But it's like everything is impossible, but we have to do it anyway. Yes. You know, I think it's, oh, I think the, the bottom line is that being that openness or that radical openness to trying to make institutions more permeable to people who would make them better when you're within them is is a moral duty that is bound to make you deeply and profoundly uncomfortable mm -hmm. and not as well liked as you would like. Yeah. Um, but and that in many respects, it's a very it's it's a profoundly difficult thing to ask of any professional. Um, it often means that it's difficult to get into the sort of uh, leadership and management mm -hmm. positions within these organizations because it's not seen as congruent with your role. Mm -hmm as a professional, um, but you, you have to do it anyway, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's so, you know, look. You have I, to live with the contradictions. Live with the contradictions, but also not get burned out. And I think this is the, the thing that he, he faces, you know, in the book where he gets burned out and he decides to leave uh, and become a writer. Uh, and so I think one of the ways that, many scholars who are focusing on social change is to not just talk about the struggle all the time, not just to talk about the terrible institutions, but to then have conversations about what do we want? What kinds of spaces can we produce that do not replicate the violence, misogyny, et cetera, uh, of the kind of system that we live in? Because we need to create those spaces so that we do not become institutionalized and reproduce ourselves as part of these sort of terrible institutions, right? And so I think for, for all of us, part of a, a, what I, I hope that we do is to engage in what Robin Kelly calls freedom dreams, Right, imagining, thinking about, engaging, and practicing on an everyday basis. How do we want to relate to one another as human beings outside of the kinds of subjective roles that are produced for us by these institutions? Right, and so we try to do this, and I try to do this in my classes, where I introduce my students to literature and work that is trying to do the hard work of imagining other possibilities, alternative possibilities, counter mappings. 
as I call them uh, in my own work. Sort of how do we countermap this place to imagine this kind of landscape, not as a deadly death, you know, death wielding machine, but as a space that allows individuals to thrive and to be the kinds of human beings they choose to be. So how do we produce a desert landscape that is not militarized, et cetera, um, but that it, we can see in all of its beauty without constantly having in the back of our, our heads, it's hot, there's no water, people are going to die, right? Because um, for me, like I grew up in the desert. And it's a deadly space, and it can I, be. And I grew up in. in but he, the, he writes about the indigenous people in the yeah, space yeah, who, yeah. who do yes. live in the space, right? Because they know how. Yes, and and I grew up on the reservation. I mean, I, part of it is like spending time on the reservations as a kid, going swimming in the rivers <laughs> uh, in the Coachella Valley, um, and uh, so to me, it was also a beautiful space. And a space where you were able to live and thrive and not have to worry about, um, you know, this kind of the terrible everyday realities of having to grow up poor as a poor sort of Mexican-American kid in, in this landscape that was regularly patrolled by the Border Patrol, right? Um, and so the question, I think, for me, getting back to your question, is that I hear you, and yet... This is why I think it's important not to get burned out, to constantly engage and find your people that you can have conversations with and, and say, this is what we want. This is how we're going to choose to live outside of that kind of violence. Yeah, I, I want to add, I, I work as a planning commissioner in the city of Paramount where, where I grew up. And I, I see that exact thing playing out all the time. There's obviously, like in a lot of parts of Southeast uh, Los Angeles, there's environmental justice going on there. And people rightfully are expressing um, a lot of discontent, anger, frustration with uh, how the city has um, perhaps not done enough to crack down on metal companies that have been polluting the air and compromising people's health. Um, but I find that there is a lack of the conversations that you're talking about, productive conversations about um, it's one thing to not want these companies there. It's one thing to resent the fact that the city is perhaps not doing enough. But what then do we uh, identify as being possible with with an understanding of how cities work, how these institutions work, what can we do? And are we doing that? Are we having those productive conversations? And um, that resonates with me. And, mm -hmm. and, and as somebody who is going into academia, um, it's also very, um, it's very uplifting to hear you talk about academics actually being part of um, this overall force to um, influence how we think about things and um, if not entirely uh, change institutions overnight, which of course is impossible, but to um, still be able to create enough uh, content that really forces people or encourages people to ask these kind of questions and push this kind of dialogue. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I, I definitely think that um, it's it's good to hear you talk about that as, as, a, as an academic um, being a student. There are a few of us. On <laughs> <laughs> now, also, there, there's a. There, you found one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a lot of reasons why Lisa is my advisor. Yes, I, I find that's that, good. that I find that she is a very unique individual in mm -hmm. the institution, and that's 
uh, also very encouraging to see. Um, I want to refer to a a segment of the book that talks about an essay called War and Imagination by Rivera Garza, Mm -hmm. where she considers the work of Italian writer and critic Alessandro Barrico. Uh, And she says, it is only when we as societies are able to invent something more exciting, more risky, more adventurous, more revolutionary, that we can say we are truly against war. She calls this a form of radical form of pacifism. And um, that's your comments made me think about that because here we're talking about war, but we could be talking about a lot of other things, environmental injustice, for example. Um, How do we create something different? And what does, in in a radical form of whatever that is, what does that look like? And um, this is a lot of my motivation for wanting to get a PhD is to dive deeper into, you know, answering those kind of questions. And and I think another thing I thought the book uh, did well is introducing, if if only briefly, interesting research um, that sort of provided more perspectives to consider uh, outside of the focused conversation about the border. Um, There's research that he mentions back from the 90s about this warrior gene and uh, sort of (gasps) how it triggered exposure. Do you have the warrior gene? (laughs) So I I, I read this. from the bloody Aztecs? I, 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 I read this and thought, how have I not heard of this? This just seems like a big enough finding that it seems like it would have seeped into our right. It's, it's got to be contested, and um, otherwise, it would seem to be the kind of thing that I we think would the be one thing that isn't more. contested about the story that he tells there is the role that early childhood trauma mm-hmm. and violence plays right. in inculcating people into violence later on in life, particularly men. Right. And he plays, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's, he doesn't, it's the kind of, because of the book, but, you know, so so much of the conversation among cognitive scientists and biological conversations about, you know, behavior is about these things, and he touches on a little bit, but these things are possible. You may be predisposed, right? But it doesn't sort of result in an automatic sort of violent, you know, char- you know uh, character that you display, right? Uh, and it gets back to this question about the relationship between these biological factors and these kind of traumatic traumatic events that you know you are exposed to as a young person right yeah one more thing i wanted to go back to another thing juan, juan said so many things that just, <laughs> just a lot of jump off points um when you talk about where Cantu is in history when he's entering the border patrol um and the escalated violence that is about to unfold um I think that another thing I appreciated about the book is early in the book, he's at a shop, he's in a checkout line, and there's he describes two ladies behind him talking about the upcoming Mexican presidential election mm-hmm. um, and saying, yeah, we want a candidate who is going to be tough on crime. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a subtle way that places – it's a subtle tool that I think is placing you at a specific moment in time when we're – I have to say at that time – Part of me thought this was a good thing that Calderon was actually going to do something more about the you know the drug cartels, um, and then as we 
obviously now know um, there were a lot of repercussions for that, a lot of negative consequences and the way that he went about it in a very militaristic way, um, you know, not thinking through sort of what the uh, response would be from the cartels and just the amount of violence that escalated. Um, well, the idea that somehow arresting one cartel leader mm-hmm. right, was going to be this transformational moment. Right. I wanted to jump in here and broaden this from the discussion of the border because I think one of the nice things about discussing this in a governance podcast is not, it's not just the border where American policy responses have been limited to more violent more control, more policing, more military. It's a it's a knee jerk reaction, um, and it's there's part of me that was reading through this, going, "Is this the only thing our federal government is capable of doing anymore?" Right. With the you know denial of the reality of a welfare state, that the only role that we're willing to allocate to the state is one is its worst role, mm-hmm. arguably its worst and most violent form of itself. Um, and to me, the, the discussion of the law and order is that, of course, when you're in an environment um, where corporations in their most violent form, in their most lawless form, rule the spaces, the, the desire amongst anybody subject to that power is, the, is for another power, mm-hmm. uh, ostensibly benevolent, to come in and, and create a different order. Yeah. I want... I want to thank you for for that intervention because part of the violence of border making is accepting that border policy is about the actual physical physical location <laughs> of the border. Right. Because what that does is that uh, you know occludes right all of the things that have led to. Millions of people needing to flee their homes in order to survive on a daily basis. So you mentioned, Jaime, this key moment, right? The 90s, Operation Gatekeeper, etc. What else was going on? NAFTA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, What else was going on in many of these communities that the drug cartels have taken hold in is the complete dissolution of local economies that are able to sustain everyday life. That's right. right. So the creation, you know, the dismantling of uh, agriculture, um, the the sort of dismantling of a certain kind of industrial base in Mexico, massive human migrations that are taking place within Mexico itself, right? Where people are moving from rural areas to the cities, and then you're creating these huge pockets of urban, uh, you know, uh, poverty and unemployment, et cetera. But and, the, and in and of itself is a reflection of a global. Exactly. Right. Global right. effect of migration to cities. Right. And so you have like the U.S. completely you know, involved in that process all the way to from their involvement with Salinas de Gortari in in the 1990s, all the way to Calderon when this book is sort of, you know, you mentioned that moment where the cartels now are really about, and in Mexico, the conversation right now is about 
do we have a failed state? So you mentioned governance, right? Um, do we have the fa a failed state? What kinds of economic opportunities does the cartel bring into the conversation that are meeting people's everyday needs precisely because the economy and the state can no longer provide those functions, right? They are the only game in town in some of these places. Right. And so, so I think... Exactly right. To move away from the violence of just focusing on the border and the answer then becomes let's stop the, the, the migration into the long history that I think you've mentioned before uh, that the U.S. has been complicit and involved in Mexico. I mean, you know, it was in the early 1900s where U.S. companies owned, you know, 75 percent or more of all of the major industries in Mexico. Um, and so large pieces of land, et cetera. So we have always been involved in that process <laughs> as a country, and and that certainly was true in the 1990s, and yet we don't want to have those conversations. All we have is conversations about stopping migration at the border, right? Well, and, and, and just, and I yeah. please want to come back to you, but I want to mm -hmm. jump in on this point to say that although this discussion in this book talks about Mexico, we're now thinking about in our repressive activities on the border, uh, Central American activities right. that the United States has engaged in that have absolutely acted as a means of dislocating people from their localities and making them for all practical purposes stateless. Right. And on top of that, how Mexico itself, in order to survive in the relationship with the United States, is now being complicit and in, in enforcing in many of the mm -hmm. same ways its own southern border. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Just recently, people have started to die in the con custody of Mexican migration police. Right. Yeah. And Central American people. Right. Who, for the most part, are largely indigenous Guatemalans, Mayans, etc. Um, and so I think exactly right. We, we lose, you know, track of, of the larger scope around governmentality and global affairs if we only stick to the kinds of uh, landscapes that are written in this book. Right. Mm -hmm. It's where those global forces, right, become local. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why geography is so yes. meaningful and being mm -hmm. able to understand. But we can't read a book like this without looking up mm -hmm. from from where we're experiencing this. Aubrey, you were going to say something. I mean, I was just going to add to that, that, that on the other side of the border, on the U.S. side of the border, so many racist and elite favoring policies have created this culture of, you know, a, a million people, millions of people have PTSD and and where are those drugs going, you mm -hmm. know, that, that we don't ask ourselves when we say it's about the border, right. you know, that, that it isn't just about, you know, people wanting to leave Mexico, but it's also, uh, you know, it's just so much bigger and it's so complex and it's this, this history that we need to sort of look at and say, what are the possibilities, what, which is why I really like what, what you've said earlier is, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in and mm -hmm. how can we start to build that versus looking at this, the border, which is which is a construct that doesn't really exist anyway. Well, it does exist because I mean, we have yes, made it you're, real, you're right? right. I mean, yes, I, yeah, you just I mean, want to make this, talk about our physical reality and then the, what we made. Right. But also, I think one of the reasons why I did like this book is that at the end, you know, I think one of the things that's been very difficult for people to just say up front is that our border enforcement is unbelievably inefficient. It's unbelievably inefficient. They're, he's not participating in any dismantling of any cartel here or there. Mm -mm. He might, you know, they might cause cartel people to dump this load of drugs or that load of drugs. But you get the sense that these are largely decoys, mm -hmm. right? They're rounding up people that are just 
trying to make a living in a world and they're using you know the the powers that be in border patrol use that utterly pointless enforcement mm-hmm. of impo- on impoverished people mm-hmm. as a sign that they're doing their jobs that's right. not the job that we need have done there Mm-mm. And again, and it's expensive and it's inefficient. Yeah. And so, you know, even if we boil this down to economic terms or public finance terms, it's not succeeding on any level, notwithstanding the cruelty and um, impoverishing and repressiveness of it. On well, for everyone. Yeah. yeah. But what you what you highlight there, Audrey, is I think part of the way in which the the performance of the border right. has changed. Um so where we have now, where it's so clearly, undeniably about sort of these racializations <laughs> and these racist politics, uh, people have been saying this, scholars, organiza- community organizers for, for decades, uh, but there was always a pushback because it was, well, it's no, we're just trying to enforce the border. And I think that at, at this moment, we're in the point where the performance of the border, and this is why I think it's so important to read some of this literature like, you know, Operation Gatekeeper by Joseph Nevins, because what he writes about, and other people have written about this now, in the performance of the border takes on many different kinds of ways. So he talks about the daily performance of border enforcement, border patrol, etc. But then you have border policy. And, and immigration policy. And the and what Joseph Nevins does in his book, he brilliantly lays out where he talks to congressional people and, and they know that what they're doing and the policies that they're recommending will not fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Yet that is not why they do it. Mm-hmm. They do it in order to get elected and to build their base, mm-hmm. right? And so that connection between a certain kind of nativist politics, right, uh, and a certain kind of border performance has really been the history of border enforcement, especially along the U.S.-Mexico border mm-hmm. uh, since it was created in 1924. And to not you know? divorce that, right, from right. the very need that capital has for right. the perpetual precarity of migrant labor. Right. 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 That this isn't really about keeping people out. It's about creating a rationale for treating them badly. Yes. Mm. To create right. precarious subjects. <laughs> right. In their workforce and in our legal exactly. systems once they're here. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I We're going to run a little bit long, but I'm going to risk being even longer because I really want to ask this question because I think it will be interesting given who's in this room. Do you know your own family migration stories? You do? You do? <laughs> I, uh, there are so many, but I know <laughs> some better than others. Certainly. Aubrey? I do not. I do not, and I was punished for asking. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And I strongly suspect, and this is, a, this is something that I encounter a lot when talking with my friends and neighbors here in California who are Latino or who are Asian, yeah. that just mathematically... Their, country, their, their families have been in North America or at least in this country longer than mine has. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask the question is that I have that all erased. And it's hard for me to figure out in my family just why this is. Right. Well, no, that's part of it. I well, mean, no, in my particular family, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, mine yeah. is strange. But in the world. I, right. say, I think your family and my family is strange in similar ways. Well, <laughs> there's part of me that kind of wonders if there isn't. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, no, I think it's, I don't want to say it because people do listen, but um, I get to have that 
anonymity yes. because mm-hmm. of the color of my skin. Right. Yes, I don't Right. Um, and I think it's that in of itself is a very important reason for asking these kinds of questions. Because one of the things that I think Kantu does very well is he writes really beautifully about the warmth and hospitality of the individuals that he encounters mm-hmm. on the border. Um, and that's one of the contradictions that he wants us to understand. Yeah. Um, I would also say that it, if you do sit down to read this book and you don't read any Spanish, it's worth trying to work your way through them because mm-hmm. I think that's a, one of the ways in which he demonstrates the warmth of the people that he yeah. interacts with. Um, there's a very warm way I, that I feel like Mexican speakers of Spanish have in terms of phrases that you don't see in other other uh, Spanish speakers that I think is present in this book and that I very much appreciated in being able to read it. Yeah. Just... You know, again, Lisa, thank you for bringing this up. But, you know, I, it's it's difficult because especially on a campus like USC, maybe there are, what, five professors in the social sciences that are Mexican-American, maybe? Um, in, and Los An- in Los Angeles. In USC. In and, USC. And, and, and in L.A., you know, because you see, you know, so very small. We're a very small, small, small group of people who are Mexican-American or Latinx um, PhDs in a tenure-track position at a top-tier one university, right? And so it's precisely the points that you made that are really important because I always usually have to make them, right? <laughs> uh, and so, and I, I'm tired of always being the kind of uh, the translator, the cultural translator for folks. And, and you will hear this repeatedly, but this is why I think it's really important for people to go and read ethnic studies literature, mm-hmm. right? Because ethnic studies scholars have been making the point that you just made for a long time. Right. And that's right? where I got it. Yes. Right? It's not like I figured this out And And own. this is why I was saying, <laughs> no, no, but this is why I say, because the, the point that you, it's important for other folks beyond people like myself to make those points, right? Like, well, you're, the thing about this is you're ignorant if you are not reading outside right. Right, of, of American mainstream right. literature. And so, right. so this is the, I have, I teach classes where there are 200 bright-eyed, you know, <laughs> uh, first and second year students at USC where either I'm teaching peoples and cultures of the Americas or I'm teaching race and class in LA. Uh, and it's the first time where people, where I ask them, where are you from? And I say, you know, because you know, I'm always asked where I'm from. Right. right? Never. And, and the subtext is always, you're not really American. Or, and and I faced this, you know, I was in Oxford and I would make, you know, frijoles and, and, and arroz and make tacos and, and stuff because I was, I, that's what I eat. And people would come, you're so exotic. Like, where are you from? And I would say, I'm, I'm American. <laughs> and they would say, no, 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 you're not. I said, yes, I am. <laughs> and to this day, students ask me, where are you from? I'm from Coachella. I'm from LA. I'm from California. <laughs> I'm American. And but it's always that underlying note, but where are you really from? Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of the the blessed ignorance of not having to know where you're from because you're not asked. The assumption is that you are from that place, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a question that I, with my students, I'm always talking to them about like no matter how how people, how hard people like Jose try in this book. He will always be seen, even if he becomes a U.S. citizen, as something other, mm-hmm. right? People will always ask him, where are you from? 
Right? And it will go the same way with Diego, his yeah, son. Yeah, exactly. And because it's happened with me, right? right? <laughs> it happens with my kids, right? And 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 so I think th- this is the way in which that kind of, th- it's the violence of the border is so embedded in our everyday lives. And extends so much further than yes. that physical So space. when people ask me that question, I, I, I flinch. Well, right? the, the twins, you have to have a story. <laughs> yes, yes. Whereas I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I flinch, you know. And so this is why as people are, I'm just like, I'm not going to speak. So I'm not going to speak to you in Spanish. I'm not going to tell you that where my parents are from. Uh, I'm just going to stick to like, this is who I am. I speak English. If you want to talk to me, speak to me in English. Right. Because there is, as you said, a certain kind of emotional interaction that if I think that you already do not see me as capable of being on the same level level of you, I'm not going to speak to you in Spanish because that's where my, you know, this is, when I speak to somebody with cariño, which means with affection, like this is how I, my parents spoke to me. So this is how I speak to my kids when I say mija or mijo. But if you're already questioning my ability to be a full human being, why do you think I'm going to speak to you in Spanish? Because there's no cariño there. <laughs> you haven't demonstrated that to me. And so part of that is, yes, that acknowledgement of, you know, there is this way in which violence is reproduced in which people do not accept it. And then people say, oh, you're triggered. No, I don't care. Like, I don't, you know, you can, I'm whatever. This is not you about me. You don't owe you them. This is about yeah, you, you yeah. and about you your ignorance them. and how you are perceiving it. It's not about me. I'm not upset. Because you know what? I've had to grow up in this kind of situation all my life and it will continue to happen. I remember when I came to campus and people would, you know, assume that I was a student. And when I would say, no, no, I'm a professor. They're like, really? Maybe because I have a goatee and my color of my skin. Maybe it's because you look so young. <laughs> I was going to say you look young. That's what they said. never assume that about me. <laughs> but anyways, but this is, I think that you're right and right on. And, and I think that that. That further reading, especially of uh, ethnic studies, in conversation with people like Francisco Cantu is absolutely critical. Well, and a, 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 I think the important of reading in ethnic studies and reading in area studies more generally is there's a way of reading that is not voyeuristic, mm-hmm. which there's a voyeurism to the to the need to see these kinds of stories yeah. and the demand to hear them about right. the border right. that is itself counterproductive versus the desire for, for people to be able to have their own voice and speak to their own realities yeah. about their experiences of being in place and coming to place and making a space that's, that's their own. Let me say this and I'll shut up because I think no. that's really important because it gets back to circling back to the point about you made about can we change institutions? Um, and the point that you made earlier about finding people, you know, Ethnic studies departments, including American studies and ethnicity at USC, exist because students and community members fought for them, right? As spaces of refuge and spaces of possibility within institutions that had shuttered shuttered them out. So when you talk about can institutions be changed, you know, I look at places like my own department that for the most part, if you look across many campuses, the only the place where you will see the highest concentrations, just as in gender and women's studies, of people of color is in these departments because we have had to carve out within these institutions spaces where we can say these things, where we can produce and challenge the epistemological paradigms uh, of the status quo. And you will find people 
right, that are engaged in these kinds of daily struggles. Uh, but that come came from not one or two people who said, I'm going to get my PhD, I happen to have darker skin, and I'm going to change the institution. That came through activist struggle with those folks and students on campuses engage with community members and saying, these institutions need to reproduce the social and public good, not the good of the elites, right? And I think, so this is how we find these spaces and, and this is how we change these institutions. Uh, it's slow as hell, but you know. And hard. <laughs> and hard. Right. And hard. Uh, but so we, a, we continue the struggle, right? I'm going to have to start wrapping this up, yeah. but one of the nice things that he talks about here that I wish we had more chance to talk about is... Um, Gosh, I wish I could remember it precisely. But when somebody confronts him about being tired and having mm -hmm. gone through a lot, and he's outside, it's Jose actually, mm -hmm. where he, where Jose, his friend Jose, when when Francisco is working in the coffee shop, mm -hmm. and Jose notices that the struggle was written on the body. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a really nice insight because we do have a lot of really interesting scholarship in geography in particular, mm -hmm. about the geography of bodies mm -hmm. and these interactions about how landscape and trauma become written in, in the body and on the body. There's so much richness in this book, and I hate to close down the discussion, but we probably should. Um, did you like the book? I did, yes. Um, I agree that it is part of something that you should be reading other things or ideally. Um, I, I really loved his, the language that he uses. I mean, I just think he's a really wonderful writer. Um, and surprisingly, I mean, the mother is this character that, that comes alive in just a few little places. I mean, you know, um, so yes, I, I, I enjoyed reading this. I enjoyed reading it. Uh, I think that it's a good table setter for a lot of conversations that can go in a lot of different directions. That's a brilliant way of putting it. I have <laughs> I, I, I have uh, eight pages here in front of me of different <laughs> themes that I tried to uh, categorize uh, throughout when I went back. Uh, and I read this on Kindle and also wondered, people who read hardcover, who don't read Spanish, so much of those those subtle uh, expressions in Spanish might be lost unless somebody took the extra step to look up. And they should. Uh, and they should. And on Kindle, I was reminded that it would be easier to do that. Um, but yeah, I definitely um, think that the book just lays out so much of what is a very complicated and layered topic, and I appreciated it for that reason. Um, and and I, I, I have also so many political thoughts that I found myself sort of revisiting. Um, and then I also went out and talked to my stepdad, who had uh, crossed the border twice. I talked to an uncle who worked for Customs and Immigration. Um, and so this book sort of opened up a lot of um, topics and conversations that I haven't had in a while. And um, I, I really appreciated it for that as well. Is it a perfect book? Does it do enough? Does it go deep enough? For all the reasons that Juan very eloquently pointed out, it perhaps doesn't, but it it definitely is a good book to get a conversation going about a lot of different things related to the border. I liked the book, and I was incredibly frustrated. By the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you're a scholar, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the hardest positions to read a book like this with. Yeah. Um, 
Did you like the book, Lisa? I did. That's one of the reasons why I suggested it, for precisely that table-setting reason, even though I didn't have that metaphor in mind. It's a very good one. Mm -hmm. And the simple fact of uh, the matter is I really feel like during the time period of this podcast, we have not done as much as we should have to read international work Mm -hmm. here at all. Uh, And so the border is a a step towards that. Um, Who should read it? Who should read it? I think people who have this idea still of why don't immigrants just wait their turn or do things the right (laughs) way, I think they should be very much uh, looking to read a book like this because I think that's one of the points it it does do effectively. Um, I I find it disillusioning sometimes that not just people in the U.S., but when I've traveled abroad and I've talked to people from other countries, um, a lot of times – they have the same opinion and right. and and maybe don't if I have want a, to come here from Iran I have to wait etc cetera, etc cetera. absolutely never actually acknowledging the fact that for a lot of the people like Jose the border has crossed them absolutely right this very key term about this moving and there's know. this and there's this sort of moral superiority that those kind of comments are made with mm-hmm. not taking into account the fact that a lot of times people who make those comments are engineers or doctors in other countries and so they have to do things the right way if they have any hope to practice their career in the U.S., whereas other people who have not had the opportunity to have a formal education, um, you know, and are doing it for more basic survival reasons, um, you know, they obviously don't have that to think about. And so that's frustrating to me when people don't recognize those kind of privileges that they immigrate with that force them to think those in those ways but they take on this sort of moral superiority that I think is unfair. Right. The lack of recognition about how doing things the quote-unquote right way right. is a very different smoke for people in different positionalities. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That door is not as open. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't revolve the same for everybody who approaches it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Who should read this? Um, I would, you know, if I was thinking about how I would assign this to a class. Um, I would say that I would only assign it with uh, uh, with companion pieces. I would assign it with Gloria Anzaldúa's book, uh, Borderlands, in order to talk about race and and sexuality on the border. I would assign it with Sandra C- some of Sandra Cisneros' work in order to talk about embodied experience, especially as a woman on the border. I would assign it with something like Operation Gatekeeper to talk about the policies that are happening. And I would assign it with, you know, somebody like um, uh, uh, Ruben Martinez's book, who wrote a book called El Otro Lado, The Other Side, who is in the same genre where he goes to Mexico and he travels to these towns where people are coming from and he travels with some families and goes on both sides of the border to talk about them um, because he is engaged in some of the critique of Cantu's work is that he doesn't do that kind of community uh, work and involvement and Ruben has been somebody who has been doing that work with uh, border around border issues for a long time and then I would encourage people to to look at the work of Enciso, oh my goodness I forgot what his name is, he's an artist based out of Tucson um, who does crosses and marks every single site where mm-hmm. a body has been found outside of the Arizona and to, in the Tucson borderlands. Um, but he works with families and community organizations. I heard him talk about a cross that he was going to put out for a Sikh uh, young girl of eight years old who died crossing the border. 
and is working with the Sikh community there to to organize around bringing these issues to light. Uh, and but in a way where he's talking about the border and a different kind of in a different way, in a visual, in an artistic way, but also in a way where he's talking about how people are coming together around the border in order to talk about uh, not only the violence, but to build community, uh, to sort of negate some of the walls that are erected when we only allow the border as a dividing line to exist as a sort of epistemic possibility. Do you have a favorite line or passage from it? Was, there are so many really good sentences in here. <laughs> it's okay if you didn't. You know, you could just have a favorite part, too. Okay, I'm going to start. Um, this I don't know that this is my favorite line, but um, because it's quite sad. But um, it's Jose talking, and he says, um, it's on page 238. He says, I know there are laws. I know that they need to be enforced. But at the same moment, these laws are wounding me. Wounding something inside me. That's a good line. Speaks for itself. Do you have one? Yeah. And I just titled this Es Necesario. It's Necessary. <laughs> where Jose is talking about this and, and he says... Which page are you on? The last page. Oh. Uh, 242 before the epilogue. Where he says, My boys are not dogs to be abandoned in the streets. I will walk through the desert for five days, eight days, ten days, whatever it takes to be with them. I'll eat grass. I'll eat bushes. I'll eat cactus. I'll drink filthy cattle water. I'll drink nothing at all. I'll run and hide from La Migra. I'll pay the mafias whatever I have to. They can take my money. They can rob my family. They can lock me away. But I will keep coming back. I will keep crossing again and again until I make it, until I am together again with my family. No, no me quedo aquí. Voy a seguir intentando pasar. Um, and I, it's powerful because I would have conversations with my grandmother, my grandfather, my father, and my mother um, about why they came. And many of those vignettes about whatever it took uh, because uh, they understood what it, it meant to, to come to, this, to the United States and build a better life. But that idea of Es necesario, right? It's absolutely necessary. It's such a powerful idea about the border and another way to think about it um, outside of those deadly walls. I think for me there was uh, this uh, phrase where he's, the section where he says, Oh, can I, I'm going to stop you. What page are you on? <laughs> he's on the Kindle. Page 192 on my Kindle. It's okay. <laughs> My mother soon confided in the man, and he became the first person she ever told about her lifelong shame of being Mexican. The man smiled at her. That's how it works, he told her. The first generation struggles to leave, to come into the, a new country, to gain acceptance in a new culture. Often they arrive and find themselves ostracized. They settle in pockets. They do everything they can just to get a toehold. Whether or not they learn English themselves, they know that their children must speak it. Sometimes they go as far as to discourage their children from speaking their own language. They want them to get into good schools, to identify with their new culture, to be accepted by it in all the ways they were not. The man looked knowingly at my mother as he explained. This second generation, he continued, might find themselves at great distance from the culture of their parents. Perhaps somewhere along the way, they are told to put the old culture behind them, and so they find it within themselves to reject it. The reason this struck me and just 
made me sort of pause for a while was just thinking about um, as I go into academia, uh, being first generation, thinking about um, what is the line that I walk in holding on to my culture um, and and trying to be a successful academic um, in this country. Um, and I, I think there, there are so many layers to this. I mean, it's, it's very hard to articulate, but I think that that idea of um, how you view your identity and um, it made me think of there's a Chicano series where Sal Castro, um, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a very emotional moment in that documentary series where he's, where he talks about um, the walkouts in the sixties mm -hmm. and he, and he, and he cries and he says, it's, it was a beautiful day to be a Chicano. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way that Cantu writes here um, and sort of evoking that, sort of identity crisis that I think a lot of Mexican-Americans feel uh, is something that I think carries a lot of weight. My favorite, there's so many, there's a lot of really good writing here. He's an excellent writer. So for uh, students who are reading this book, please pay attention to his sentences and how deliberately he uses them, mm -hmm. how strategically he uses and deploys different uh, uh willingness to create metaphor turn to rely on description versus when he just lets the material speak for itself in very short sentences and here's a a point where he just uses three short sentences his writing about landscape is very descriptive often very long and poetic here it's just bang 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 it's on page uh, 138 juarez went underwent a grim transformation it was no longer the city where women died. It was the city where everyone died. Mm. And, you know, it's, that's, that's a very uh, gifted, a gifted writer deploying him, his craft to great effect. Mm. Um, we're going to have to emerge from this wonderful book and this wonderful discussion. <laughs> it's been so nice to have you here talking about this today, all of you. But what are you reading now that you might recommend? I am reading uh, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. Uh, and... Uh, uh, because he's coming. Because he's coming, yes. Uh, we're, having, um, we're having him come speak to uh, students who are in roles of governance at USC as well as faculty, um, which is part of the community organizing to try to make this place better. Um, and I'm also reading um, a very interesting dis sort of dystopian fiction because, you know, that's me. Um, uh, Cory Doctorow's Walkaways, mm. which is really, really quite interesting. And actually, there were a lot of themes that uh, he touches on that we talked about today. So weird. I'm mostly reading to get started uh, to start the semester. So I'm uh, reading a lot of articles. Um, recently, I was traveling, and a book I took with me was uh, Roger Ebert's autobiography, uh, which I had meant to read a few years back. Uh, he was very influential as a film critic to me growing up, and um, I've seen the documentary uh, that um, is actually based on this book, so I finally got a chance to read it. Highly recommend it. Um, I think that it's one of the better documentaries um, of the last few years. I'm always reading about 10 books. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. But the question is, how many do I actually finish? Um, mm. 
the one I have now, and I have to finish, is a book called The Revolutionary Imagination in the Americas and the Age of Development. And it's by Maria Josefina Saldaña Portillo. Um, and it covers a lot of the sort of revolutionary movements, but not just from the historical perspective, but from a kind of cultural and epistemological perspective of what does the ima revolutionary imaginary, uh, imagination mean. Um, and it covers some of the things about how does change happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is terrific, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am reading a book by Hassan Amanouf and Dan Joseph called Inside Al-Shabaab, mm. which is about uh, an ally of Al-Qaeda. I'm not very far into it yet. Hmm. Um, and it's just part of, the, part of the functioning of international relations that I just don't know anything about. So I don't actually have any intelligent opinions about the book yet. Hmm. I'm just trying to be a little less, less ignorant about those things. So that's all we're going to have time for today. Are there any other closing thoughts you guys want to leave us with? Thanks for inviting us. Oh, it has been a complete pleasure. Thank you, Juan, Jaime, and Abre. And a big thanks to our listeners. To find our whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search, quote, USC Bedrosian, unquote, on your favorite podcasting app. And, of course, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so that more people will be able to find us. You'll find a link to some of the things we talked about today on our website bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. That's where we are. Upcoming books on the podcast. Next month, we're going to read something to get us thinking in a very different way about the role of the university and the role of students. Uh, we're reading The Undercommons by Stefano Harney and Fred Moten. It's a challenging read in that way that we think you'll find very inspiring. One piece of advice, and, and this is from Aubrey. It's a very good insight. From Chris Finley, it's an American. Because ah, I was going to say, as soon as this came across my desk, um, I absolutely agreed. It's a very good, uh, very good insight is to read the interview at the end first, then go back and read the beginning. So thank you to Chris for that. Please, uh, in addition to that, we will also be reading Why Cities Lose by Jonathan A. Roden. Roden? I don't know. The subtitle is The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. Um, so read along with us. We'd really appreciate it. If you do, please follow us on social media or sign up for the Bedrosian Center's newsletter to hear what else we have coming up. Thanks again to Juan, Jaime, and Aubrey, and to our co-producers Jonathan Swartz and Aubrey Hicks, and to our beloved sound editors, the brothers Hedden, St. Corey, and Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Signing off, I'm Lisa Schweitzer coming to you from the beautiful University of Southern California, Saul Price School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening, and please keep reading. Mm -hmm.